great. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One USA NA. I'm Zanny Minton Beddoes. You're listening to Editor's Picks. Each week, we choose three of the key stories from the paper. Each piece offers authoritative insight into the international news stories that shape the world we live in. Now over to one of my colleagues to tell you what's in store in this edition. Thanks, Zanny. It's June the 13th, 2019. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. Coming up, Huge demonstrations in Hong Kong have rattled the territory's government and the Chinese leadership in Beijing, both a right to feel threatened. Next, amid rising geopolitical tensions, America is pouring money into high-tech armaments. A deal between two of the largest defense companies in the country highlights the changing nature of war. And finally, a police raid on Australia's state broadcaster is just one outrage among many the country is developing a surprising disregard for free speech. First up, hundreds of thousands of protesters have taken to the streets of Hong Kong. Three things stand out about the protesters who rocked Hong Kong this week. There were a great many of them. Hundreds of thousands took to the streets in what may have been the biggest demonstration since Hong Kong was handed back to China in 1997. Most of them were young, too young to be nostalgic about British rule. Their unhappiness at Beijing's heavy hand was entirely their own, and they showed remarkable courage. Since the Umbrella Movement of 2014, the Communist Party has been making clear that it will tolerate no more insubordination, and yet three days later, demonstrators braved rubber bullets, tear gas, and legal retribution to make their point. All these things are evidence that, as many Hong Kongers see it, nothing less than the future of their city is at stake. On the face of it, the protests were about something narrow and technical. Under the law, a Hong Kong resident who allegedly murdered his girlfriend in Taiwan last year cannot be sent back there for trial. Hong Kong's government has therefore proposed to allow the extradition of suspects to Taiwan and to any country with which there is no extradition agreement, including the Chinese mainland. However, the implications could not be more profound. The colonial-era drafters of Hong Kong's current law excluded the mainland from extradition because its courts could not be trusted to deliver impartial justice. With the threat of extradition, anyone in Hong Kong becomes subject to the vagaries of the Chinese legal system, in which the rule of law ranks below the rule of the party. Dissidents taking on Beijing may be sent to face harsh treatment in the Chinese courts. Business people risk a well-connected Chinese competitor finding a way to drag them into an easily manipulated jurisdiction. That could be disastrous for Hong Kong, a fragile bridge between a one-party state and the freedoms of global commerce. Many firms choose Hong Kong because it is well-connected with China's huge market. 
but also upholds the same transparent rules that govern economies in the West. Thanks to mainland China, Hong Kong is the world's eighth-largest exporter of goods and home to the world's fourth-largest stock market. Yet its huge banking system is seamlessly connected to the West and its currency is pegged to the dollar. For many global firms, Hong Kong is both a gateway to the Chinese market and central to the Asian continent. More than 1,300 of them have their regional headquarters there. If Hong Kong came to be seen as just another Chinese city, Hong Kongers would not be the only ones to suffer. The threat is real. Since he took over as China's leader in 2012, Xi Jinping has been making it clearer than ever that the legal system should be under the party's thumb. China must absolutely not follow the Western road of judicial independence, he said in a speech published in February. In 2015, Mr. Xi launched a campaign to silence independent lawyers and civil rights activists. Hundreds of them have been harassed or detained by the police. The authorities on the mainland have even sent thugs to other jurisdictions to abduct people, including a publisher of gossipy books about the party, snatched from a car park in Hong Kong, and a tycoon taken from the Four Seasons Hotel in 2017. The message is plain. Mr. Xi not only cares little for the rule of law on the Chinese mainland, he scorns it elsewhere, too. The Hong Kong government says the new law has safeguards, but the protesters are right to dismiss them. In theory, extradition should not apply in political cases and cover only crimes that would incur heavy sentences. But the party has a long record of punishing its critics by charging them with offences that do not appear political. Hong Kong's government says it has reduced the number of white-collar offences that will be covered, but blackmail and fraud still count. It has said that only extradition requests made by China's highest judicial officials will be considered, but the decision will fall to Hong Kong's chief executive. That person, currently Carrie Lam, is chosen by party loyalists in Hong Kong and answers to the party in Beijing. Local courts will have little room to object. The bill could throttle Hong Kong's freedoms by raising the possibility that the party's critics could be bundled over the border. It is a perilous moment. The protests have turned violent, possibly more violent than any since the anti-colonial demonstrations in 1967. Officials in Beijing have condemned them as a foreign plot. Ms. Lam has been digging in her heels, but it is not too late for her to think again. In its narrowest sense, the new law will not accomplish what she wants. Taiwan has said that it will not accept the suspect's extradition under the new law. Less explosive solutions have been suggested, including letting Hong Kong's courts try cases involving murder committed elsewhere. Anti-subversion legislation was left to languish after protests in 2003. There is talk that the government may see this as the moment to push through that long-shelved law. Instead, Muslam should take it as a precedent for her extradition reform. The rest of the world can encourage her. Britain, which signed a treaty guaranteeing that Hong Kong's way of life will remain unchanged until at least 2047, has a particular duty. 
Its government has expressed concern about the potential effects of the new law, but it should say loud and clear that it is wrong. With America caught up in a trade war with China, there is a risk that Hong Kong becomes the focus of a great power clash. Some American politicians have warned that the law could jeopardize the special status the United States affords the territory. They should be prudent. Cutting off Hong Kong would not only harm American interests in the territory, but also wreck the prospects of Hong Kongers, an odd way to reward its would-be Democrats. Better to press the central government or threaten case-by-case -case scrutiny of American extraditions to Hong Kong. But would this have any effect? That is a hard question, because it depends on Mr. Xi. China has paid dearly for its attempts to squeeze Hong Kong. Each time, the world sees how its intransigence and thuggishness is at odds with the image of harmony it wants to project. When Hong Kong passed into Chinese rule 22 years ago, the idea was that the two systems would grow together. As the protesters have made clear, that is not going to plan. Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home edition, maybe even an addition on that edition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. Next up, the nature of defense spending is changing. With a deep voice and physique of a former American football player, Greg Hayes, boss of United Technologies Corp., or UTC, does not seem like the soft sort, but the ego is delicate. As he told Schumpeter in February, while explaining his decision to carve UTC, a conglomerate dating back to the 1920s, into three parts, it was hard for him emotionally to accept that he may end up in charge of a smaller slice of the pie. Shed no tears, though. As he said those words, he was probably plotting a mega-merger that could make him one of America's biggest military industrialists. On June 9th, UTC, which is big in jet engines, and Raytheon, a prominent missile maker, said they would join together to create America's second-largest aerospace and defence company after Boeing, with a combined market value of $166 billion. UTC shareholders will get 57% of the combined company, to be called Raytheon Technologies. The merger reflects two trends sweeping America, the reshaping of defence because of fears about China and the streamlining of industry because of shareholder activism. Neither firm's share price reacted well to the news, and feelings are mixed. Those who support the deal see it as a neat way of balancing UTC's cyclical aerospace business, which mostly supplies Pratt & Whitney engines for passenger jets, with Raytheon's more recession-proof defence capabilities – such as making Patriot missiles. Their combined $26 billion net debt is manageable. As usual, they promise to return a ton of money to shareholders. 
Some critics say it bodes ill if two firms with apparently strong standalone businesses have to cling together for survival. Skeptics, besides worrying about the business logic, feel that Mr Hayes may be biting off more than he can chew. He aims to spin off UTC's lift business, Otis, and temperature control firm, Carrier, early next year, before completing the merger. And UTC is still integrating a new avionics business after buying Rockwell Collins for $30 billion last year. The promised gross annual cost savings of $1 billion by 2024 are paltry, mostly from combining head offices. Mr Hayes and his Raytheon counterpart, Tom Kennedy, promised to give half of that back to customers, the biggest of which is America's Defence Department. Nonetheless, President Donald Trump expressed concern about the impact of the deal on competition. From a different standpoint, however, the President would probably welcome the combination because the two trends it reflects may make America stronger. First, defence. Amid rising geopolitical tensions, America is pouring money into high-tech armaments. The Trump administration, identifying a new era of great power competition with China and Russia, has boosted defence spending sharply this year and last, and hopes for a gargantuan $750 billion budget in 2020. Many analysts expect spending to plateau after that, but given the global frictions, that is no certainty. The nature of spending is also changing, as fancy kit for intelligence, surveillance and other stealthy warcraft is given higher priority. Cara Frederick, of the Centre for a New American Security, a think tank, recalls that when she served as an intelligence officer in Afghanistan, for instance, the focus was terrorism. If you sent up a drone, there was little risk of having an enemy intercept its communications system. The Taliban didn't even have an air force, she says. But now, America faces rivals such as China that match it technologically. For software, the Pentagon has urged Silicon Valley and other tech firms to overcome their ethical quandaries and help shield American forces from cyber attacks or develop machine learning to support them on the battlefield. UTC and Raytheon, by pooling their technologies, will be better able to develop the new types of hardware of interest to the Pentagon. Examples are hypersonic missiles, which combine velocity, travelling at five times the speed of sound, with pinpoint accuracy. The merged firm intends to invest $8 billion a year in research and development on hypersonics and other systems, for instance by combining Raytheon's missile expertise with UTC's use of high-temperature materials and heat management systems in engine turbines to stop the projectiles overheating. In return, UTC hopes that Raytheon's cybersecurity skills can help it counter such threats in aerospace. Hawk Carlisle, head of the National Defence Industrial Association, a lobby group, expects defence mergers to unite traditional weapons contractors with tech firms. 
Such combinations will be helped by the second trend that the merger underscores, the constant re-engineering of old-fashioned industrial structures, especially conglomerates. The motivation is partly to avoid attacks by activist investors and also to generate higher returns. Jorge Rujana of Bain, a consultancy, says managers who frequently streamline their portfolios by buying and selling assets have, over the past decade, returned far more to shareholders than those doing big one-off deals or nothing. The fashion led two famous chemicals firms, Dow and DuPont, to merge in 2017 and simultaneously promised to split into three parts. The trouble is that reconfiguring conglomerates can be a nightmare. General Electric has been through endless, pointless contortions. Shareholders in Dow DuPont have not been well rewarded, and activists are unpredictable. The newly formed chemicals giant was pressured to rejig its rejigging after interventions by two activists, Nelson Peltz of Tryan and Daniel Loeb of Third Point. Already, some accuse Mr Hayes of the reconglomeration of UTC by merging with Raytheon. William Ackman of Pershing Square, a UTC investor, has written a letter urging him to call it off. It does not seem consistent with the Greg Hayes we know, he says. Perhaps Mr Hayes is keen to stroke his own ego. He will be the new firm's chief executive and, in 2022, become its chairman too. But by grappling with the new dynamics of aerospace and defence, as well as the changing nature of the industrial firm, he is being proactive. It is better to fight the next war than the last one. And finally, the balance Australia has struck between freedom and security has become skewed. For a growing number of Australians, it is like stumbling out of bed and not recognising, let alone liking, the face you see in the bathroom mirror. In early June, federal police raided the Sydney headquarters of the state broadcaster, the ABC. It had aired allegations of appalling deeds by Australian special forces in Afghanistan, including the killing of unarmed men and children. You might think the ABC was doing the country a service by revealing such gross misconduct. The Australian Defence Force itself had become concerned about a drift in values among elite troops in Afghanistan, yet the warrant against the ABC read as if it was straight out of an authoritarian rulebook. Among other things, it allowed investigators to add, copy, delete or alter material in the broadcaster's computers. The eye-rubbing is not just over press freedom, but about Australia's direction as a liberal democracy. The whistleblower over the Afghanistan allegations was formerly a lawyer with the Defence Department. David McBride had followed public interest disclosure rules by raising his concerns with his department. Only when he concluded that they were being ignored did he take his material to journalists. Far from being protected as a whistleblower, he is charged with the disclosure of unauthorised documents and faces a life sentence. 
His allegations, which have to do with events more than six years ago, have no obvious national security implications today. Nor is this an isolated case. The day before the ABC raid, police separately raided the home of a journalist at the Sunday Telegraph, one of Australia's best-selling papers, in connection with a story about secret plans to expand the state's surveillance powers to include snooping on people's emails, text messages and bank accounts. Last year, a former spy known as Witness K and his lawyer, Bernard Caleri, were charged four years ago exposing Australia's bugging of the government of Timor-Leste during sensitive negotiations over rights to offshore oil and gas. Meanwhile, a former employee at Australia's tax office, Richard Boyle, faces 66 charges and no fewer than 161 years in jail for exposing its allegedly aggressive debt collection techniques. When Mr Boyle reported such practices internally, he himself became the subject of an investigation. Only after he refused to sign a gag order in return for compensation did he make his claims public. All democracies face a tension between civil liberties on the one hand and national security and confidentiality within government on the other. The tensions have grown along with the threat of Islamist extremism. In Australia, the establishment feels another profound insecurity too, the insidious influence of an authoritarian China in commerce, society, academia and even politics. Even so, the balance Australia has struck between freedom and security looks skewed. Since 9-11, government has passed more than 60 pieces of legislation that impinge on civil liberties, including one last year that obliges social media firms to find ways for spooks to access encrypted communications. That is more than either America or Britain. What is more, America's First Amendment and related laws protect journalists from police who want them to disclose their sources. Britain acknowledges the guarantees of free speech in the European Convention on Human Rights. Australia is almost alone among established democracies in lacking explicit constitutional protection for civil liberties. Its feeble whistleblower laws pointedly exclude protection for public servants – even in cases that have nothing to do with national security. For all the opposition Labour Party's attempts to make hay out of the government's discomfort, it has long been an enthusiastic backer of security legislation. Indeed, few Australians challenge the overweening state. Could their self-image as authority-averse larrikins be wide of the mark? Could it be that Australia's rugged individualists are happy to defer to Nanny? Mr McBride, whose trial is due to start in a couple of weeks and whose obstetrician father is credited with exposing the side effects of thalidomide, a drug for morning sickness that caused babies to be born with deformed limbs, says the government is using the security apparatus to fight its own people now. He feels he has a duty to point this out. I've never felt better. I've never liked myself more. I've never had a doubt it was the right thing to do for Australia. Mr McBride, for one, is not afraid to look in the mirror. That's just a sample of the stories in this week's Economist. 
With a subscription, you can read or listen to all of what we do. The whole paper is read aloud each week, so please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer and get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home edition, maybe even an addition on that edition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC.